You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, right reverend, Christopher Butler. Pastor Chris, how's it going, brother? Oh, I am doing very well. Very, very well. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing really well. I I, I don't know if you saw it. You may have seen it. Um, I did a talk for the Gospel Coalition last week um, called The Lies That Serve Us. It was just talking about the conversation uh, when it comes to race in the church. Uh, and so a lot of people gave good feedback on that. If you haven't seen it on, uh, you can go to the um, the Gospel Coalition website, but I think it's it's worth talking about. It's worth the conversation and worth checking out. So I uh, hope folks who uh, support this podcast will go check out that talk and let us know what you think about it, man. Uh, add us uh, on Twitter, on Instagram and all that so we can get into the conversation, man. But you, you ready for this conversation today, brother? Yes, sir. A lot to talk about. And I think this is a, a really important one, man, because, you know, we get into the issues, we get into the day to day conversations, but sometimes we just need perspective on larger principles and larger concepts. And so we're going to get into some of that today. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Chris, uh, there has been a lot of talk lately about the filibuster. Progressives are big mad at Joe Manchin for not supporting the removal of the filibuster in the Senate, uh, which has been called a a tool of white supremacy, has been called all kinds of names uh, in in recent months and weeks. Uh, Just so everybody knows, the filibuster, and we've talked about it on church politics before, but the filibuster is basically a Senate tactic used to prolong debate. It's meant to keep the other side from passing a bill that your side doesn't have the numbers to vote down. So, uh, you know, if me and Chris were on opposite sides of the aisle and he had this bill where he had the numbers to 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 get it passed, I might just go up and speak for hours uh, just to 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 kind of take the time away from him to actually get a chance to vote on it. Now, when it comes to the filibuster, people have been revising history quite a bit to make the history of the filibuster fit their narrative. How about that? That that doesn't happen with any other subject, does it? Uh, But Bill Schur uh, wrote an article on Real Clear Politics to debunk some of the fake history and to reveal the true history of the filibuster. And I'm really uh, thankful for for this conversation because you hear so many different things about the the history of of, of this tactic. And he starts with just kind of naming off some of the things people have said about the filibuster that wa- that weren't exactly true. So he starts off with Senator Kirsten Cinema. And Cinema said that the filibuster was created. She's a Democrat. She said the uh, filibuster was created to bring together members of different parties to find compromises and coalition. Now that sounds sweet, but according to Sure, that's not historically accurate. Next, we have Progressive New York uh, magazine writer and filibuster critic Jonathan Chait. 
And Chait pointed out that cinema was pushing fake history and then proceeded to throw out some of his own fake history. Chait said this. He said the filibuster emerged in the 19th century, not by design, but due to an interpretation of Senate rules, which held that they omitted any process for ending debate. The first filibuster did not happen until 1837, and it was the result of exploiting this confusing rules glitch. Sure, again, weighs in to say that's historically inaccurate. Next, we have uh, a book by uh, former Senate aide Adam Jettelson, and in it, Jettelson says this. He said, Southern senators, both antebellum pro-slavery and post-Reconstruction segregationists, invented the filibuster, and in in 87 years between the end of Reconstruction and 1964, the the only bills that were supported by filibusters were civil rights bills. And again, Schur says that that statement is not historically accurate either. Schur says that the filibuster was invented centuries ago in the Roman Republic. It was an obstructionist tactic meant to consume the legislative day. Cato the Younger uh, was the most famous practitioner of the filibuster. It said that he would speak at the top of his lungs for hours and he used it Uh, For populist ends, Uh, he waged actually a successful six month campaign to prevent uh, Rome from increasing tax collection on the poor and others. Now, uh, sure does mention that it's true that the tactic wasn't established by the U.S. Constitution, uh, nor was it codified in the congressional rules. But the founders, who many of whom were fans of Cato and surely knew about Cato's old tactics, chose not to ban the filibuster. So uh, Schur's uh, assertion is that surely they knew about it because they they talked about Cato all the time and some of the things that he had done, but they chose not to ban the filibuster. Historians have said that the filibuster in the U.S. is as old as the Senate itself. Its use was first recorded, uh, unlike we heard in the book that I, I quoted earlier, it was first recorded in 1790. And it did not arise from any type of mistake. Now, to be clear, the filibuster was weaponized by Southern segregationists to protect Jim Crow laws. But Schur says that that case is being overstated. Right. The filibuster was used 26 times between Reconstruction and 1994 in situations that would directly change public law that was clearly killed because the ability of a minority of senators to prevent action. Only nine of those 26 times were related to civil rights. The assertion, even by folks like President Obama, the popular assertion on the progressive side is that the filibuster mainly served to empower minority white conservatives. But sure explains the filibuster is a tactic with no inherent ideological disposition. Cato used it against the authoritarians and the plutocrats of his time. As the Civil War neared its close, the radical Republicans who were against slavery, uh, aided by a few Democrats, launched a successful filibuster thwarting President Lincoln's plan to admit the government of Louisiana back into the Union because Louisiana had not yet given blacks the vote. In this century, Uh, President uh, George W. Bush, uh, in his second term, 
Uh, he, he started with a major push to partially, partially privatize Social Security. But when the Senate Democratic minority made clear that it had the votes for a filibuster, Bush had no choice but to stand down. Sure ends the article on this note, and I think this is, is, is really good. Just as supporters should not pretend that the filibuster was created to produce bipartisan harmony, critics should not pretend that the filibuster is both a historical accident and a linchpin of systemic racism. Let's tell the true story of the filibuster, not a pat story that serves the ideological purpose of one side of the debate, but the messy, convoluted story that reminds us democracy has always been difficult to maintain. What I liked about this article, Chris, is that it didn't tell us if if we should get rid of the filibuster or not. It was very, very clearly addressing some revisionist history and providing the true history of the filibuster, which is something that really wasn't about one ideological side or the other. Now, we can argue all day whether it's been used mostly for good or mostly for for evil and bad, but it's very hard to argue that it's just kind of a tool of white supremacy and all this other stuff. Chris, what are your thoughts on on this article and 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 uh, and, and just moving forward with this debate and, and just being historically accurate in general? So I was so grateful uh, to read the article. This is a topic that I've been reading quite a bit about uh, and thinking quite a bit about because it's been very much in our public discourse and. What is pointed out in the article is so important that so many people have just outright changed the history to try to fit their narrative. And that's problematic because we are sitting at a moment where uh, we may need to do some maintenance on our democracy. Uh, But that maintenance, as the article said, is, is difficult and complex and it should be thought through. And one of the very important aspects of thinking it through is thinking through and looking at the history of this particular tool and how it's been used and what have been the impacts uh, in the times when it was used and what have been the impacts in the times when it's been changed. All those things are important. And so if you just are comfortable distorting those established facts uh, it makes it so much more difficult for us to think through where we need to go in the future. And this is that's hugely problematic because I think when you look over the history of the filibuster, you see the filibuster as a tool. It's something that is used by senators. And in, in some of the history, you see that there have been uh, filibuster-like tactics used in uh, legislative bodies Before the United States ever existed, tactics like this have been used in the House of Representatives at different points in our history. It's a tool. And the use of the tool is uh, it's had different impacts over time. So I think it's very, very important to establish that history uh, because then you get to have a real honest conversation about, hey, this is a tool that different folks can use uh, at different points in time in the Senate. And do we need to get a new tool? Do we need to get rid of this tool? Do we need to adjust how it's used? But it really has, it's dishonest to try to say that the filibuster has been all good or all bad. uh, And to say that wholesale, we need to make a decision about the filibuster based on 
you know, on, on that retelling of history that tries to make it seem like the tool itself is bad when really it's just like almost any other tool is really about the, the person or the group of persons that are using it at the time and how they use it, what they're using it for, what's their skill level at using it uh, and, and all those types of things. Uh, I, one of the things that I read talked about uh, this dynamic over the course of time that uh, you did have, um, you know, sort of anti-civil rights senators for a period of time really using the filibuster. And by contrast, uh, sort of, I won't say necessarily pro-black, but folks who are pro-civil rights and at least not against civil rights really did not choose to use the the filibuster um, in the Senate, senators could have used the filibuster to hold hostage uh, bills that Southerners were valuing so that those Northern senators could uh, advance their issues in the Senate. They chose not to do that. And uh, the logic that uh, a guy named Gregory Coger puts out um, at a University of, of, of Miami is that essentially what you see is that there are Northern senators uh, who they they care about civil rights, but they don't have as many black voters trying to push them toward civil rights in their northern districts uh, as there are active, engaged Southerners pushing their senators in the southern districts. And so these Southerners are using this tool. The Northerners are not using this tool. Uh, and so that, you know, distorts the narrative of the tool. But what we really need to understand is that it's just a tool. And for the most part, Justin, elected officials behave in whatever way seems most electorally beneficial to them at the time. Uh, and so as you wade through this, I won't weigh in right now what I think about the filibuster. Maybe I will in a minute because I do think about it. Uh, I have an idea. But before you even establish your idea, it's so important that you have the right history. And the history tells you that the filibuster is like a hammer or a saw. It's not good or bad. It is all about who's wielding it and what for. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, and and we got to keep it's up to us to keep folks honest. I think you hit it on the head, Chris. Politicians in general are going to use whatever they can use at the moment to get through, you know, to get the narrative out that they want to stand. Uh, and, and it's up to us to say, no, that's not quite it, even if it's a, an argument against self-interest. And, and, and we talk about this over and over. A Christian always has to be able to make an argument for the sake of integrity, for the sake of being faithful against self-interest, if that's what the truth is. Right. Sometimes the truth doesn't just align with what your interest is. So we even see that in 2005, Obama had spoken out against against ending the filibuster. Right now, he's saying it, it's it's kind of this tool of, you know, Jim Crow and all this historically. But he spoke out against ending it and he and, and he used it several times. I mean, he used it against the National Defense Act and several other things. He's voted to filibuster a lot of different bills. And so it is somewhat convenient to now come back and say, hey, it's this terrible thing that must end. And, and really what and really it's about, you know, this uh, House bill one. Right. It's this voting. It's this voting uh, bill that Democrats really want to get through. And I, you know, we have talked about the need for re reform when it comes to voting. And it's a longer conversation when it comes to this particular bill, which has a lot of stuff thrown into it. I think, I think something like this is needed. There may be some things in here that 
would have a better chance of getting passed if you just didn't throw everything into this one bill. Uh, but we got to stay honest and we got to keep these folks honest. So I hope that, that y'all know that when me and Chris talk about something like this, it doesn't matter whether we like the politician or like the party or like the bill or not. We have to be honest about the history. We have to be honest about the facts. And unfortunately, a lot of folks are using rhetoric, are using this to kind of patch up their narrative to make it stronger. And it's just not what they say it is. And sadly, when I go on Twitter and when I look around, too many of us get caught up in the rhetoric and in the narrative and haven't taken the time to see if it's accurate or not. Chris, I'll let you take us out on this one. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, you know, we talked a lot right now about the the long view history of the filibuster and how folks are misusing that. Uh, there is very contemporary history that involves many of the exact same players uh, that would be involved with a uh, post filibuster Senate right now. Uh, and again, revisionist history. Uh, and this is uh, concerning the, the judicial filibuster which the Senate, you know, Democrats, uh, you know, in 2013, uh, the Republicans were blocking a lot of Obama uh, nominees. Before 2013, you could filibuster nominations. The the Republicans in the Senate were blocking uh, nominees, Obama's nominees, uh, to, you know, other places, you know, the, the Labor Relations Board and Defense Secretary, that type of thing. So the Senate Democrats get rid of the filibuster for those nominations. 2017, Trump's the president. He's trying to put Neil Gorsuch on the bench. In 2013, they didn't take the filibuster off of Supreme Court nominations. But 2017, Republicans have the Senate, so they take the filibuster off of the Supreme Court. Uh, you have folks who say, well, you know, well, the Senate, you know, the Democrats took the filibuster off of the Supreme Court. Well, they didn't. The Republicans did, technically. But then the, the Democrats were the ones who took it out. of. So, again, you have this sort of revisionist history, refusal to deal with the facts. And what comes gl- out glaringly is that this tool can be used to do whatever folks want to do at the moment. And so... You know, it's very important that you look at the history, that you be honest and balanced about it so that then you can really weigh if it's worth it to do. My personal view, I, I would say this, it, it certainly takes uh, much more moral imagination and uh, courage and creativity to begin to de-escalate this conversation about changing the Senate and changing some of the structures uh, inside of government. Not Not that I'm close to doing those things. But we should be applying much more moral imagination to this than these sort of um, zero sum debates around structure and rules and and that type of thing. It's just dishonest to do it that way. Yeah. And the, and the temper tantrums on about the rules, because you can't get everything that you want at the moment. I, I get where those come from. I get that these are really serious issues. But both sides do it. And, you know, we, we got to we got to find a better way. We will be back in a second on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Pastor Christopher Butler. As we speak, some of our quote unquote leaders are downplaying the January 6th insurrection and fighting an investigation on the same. 
Seniors and children are being terrorized in inner cities as crime rates skyrocket all over the country. After a year of intense pleas, no progress on police reform has been made, at least not on a federal level. Polls show that parts of America, large parts of America, are increasingly viewing Black Lives Matter as less favorable. Our Catholic president and many other Christian elected officials have refused to push back against the abortion lobby and acknowledge the value of unborn life. The president has also started to replace the word mothers with birthing people. There's a surge on the border and multiple U.S. presidents have placed immigrant children in cages, though we only call them cages when certain presidents are in office. Go figure. Our Native American brothers and sisters, uh, who about 90 percent were killed when the Europeans first came to this land, are still suffering in abject poverty on reservations. And Christians on the political left and the political right refuse to come together to find solutions. We can't even have a humble, charitable and constructive conversation on the topic of race. Christians are willfully blind, Chris, uh, to the problems that really stem from their side of the aisle. We seem to only recognize the faults of others. No, this isn't a remix of Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy Me or What's Going On. It's our present reality. It's the situation that we as Christians have been called to heal. Chris, I'm often asked at panels and in different discussions that I um, am a a part of, what gives me hope? Uh, I'm asked, how do I stay hopeful and encouraged when so many things seem to be going wrong and so many people seem to be hurting in the present moment? And let's face it, when it comes to hope, hope can sound kind of corny. Just trying to be honest. It can sound played out, hackneyed, cliched, whatever you want to call it. Hope in a worldly sense makes us seem powerless and naive. But I think it's important for Christians when it comes to the conversation about hope to understand hope in biblical terms. I think that helps us make sense of the situation. Now, the list that I just ran off of really bad things going on in our public square are really are really serious things. I mean, this is this is suffering. This is life and death situations. It's nothing small. Those things give us a reason to grieve, a reason to mourn and lament. But it shouldn't leave us without hope. And and, and that's really the point I want to get to uh, today. Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says this. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul, Chris as you know, talked a lot about hope. Um, And when he talks about hope, he talks about it as being rooted in God's plans and God's promises. For instance, uh, he wanted the church of Thessalonica in Thessalonica uh, to understand eschatology or how things end so that they could put their present circumstances into proper perspective. And that's a big point, Chris, a very big point. Christian hope gives us perspective. It gives us perspective that allows us not to be controlled by the moment, not to be overcome by the sadness or the bleakness of the moment. 
our understanding of God's plan and his ability to carry out that plan should give us hope in all things, even in politics. You see, Christian hope is about being fully persuaded. Uh, It's having certainty in God's promises that we can see that what we see and what we're experiencing right now is not all there is. That what we see and what all that list of things that I said are going on are not ultimate things. Now, it doesn't make the present moment meaningless. It doesn't mean that it's without value. But the present shouldn't be all consuming. And the president and the present isn't final when it comes to Christians. Now, I want you to notice I said certainty. I'm not talking about a vague hope or a wish for a better future, but blessed assurance that there's a larger plan in motion and a victory that has already been secured. A victory. But Chris, for whatever reason, and you know this just as well as I do, Christians aren't really bringing this kind of Christian hope into the political arena. We're just as fearful and uncertain and anxious and hopeless as everyone else. And it's so clear in how we engage. Yes, we should fight for policies that protect others and help them flourish. Of course, we should do that. We talk about that all the time on the Church Politics Podcast and the Ann Campaign talks about it ad nauseum. But if that policy doesn't pass, how do we react? Because I think that's kind of where the hope comes in. Because what I see, it's almost like the hopelessness is palpable when we don't get exactly what we want when we want it. It's very clear in the Christian response to politics and how we respond to our our opposition. There's also hope in knowing that while God can and will use us to bring about justice and moral order, he actually doesn't need us to do it. He's capable of doing it without you or me. Thank God that none of the issues that the Ann campaign addresses are completely dependent on our decisions, strength and knowledge. We do this to glorify God, not because saving the world is completely on our shoulders or anybody else's shoulders. And even with all the madness going on in the church, no matter how far some people are in denial about racism or denial about inequality, we must keep in mind that God is sanctifying his church. And that sanctification is going to happen no matter how Uh, well, you're doing with persuading someone who may be hard hearted. It's happening. And so, Chris, I just want us to think more about that perspective. Again, sometimes we come with the, the issues of the day, but I think this concept of having hope in the public square and why we can have hope even in moments like this is important. Chris, will you speak into it a little bit? Yeah, I, I, um, I'm going to, Skip some of what I was going to say, because I think, Justin, you just laid it out so well in terms of why the Christians should have uh, hope in the public square. What I think challenges people sometimes is how does that hope that is rooted in an eternal hope, a hope that is ultimately established in something that is beyond this life. How do we then translate the holding of that hope into this current life? How does it translate into human relations? And there is this 
obscure proverb in Proverbs 18, uh, verse 19, uh, says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. And that is profound wisdom on how hope impacts human relations. The writer of the proverb is clearly speaking to somebody who has a son who is demonstrating such tremendous foolishness and endangering himself to such an extent that the parent will actually think about putting the kid to death, which is where your mind can go if you don't have hope. The writer of Proverbs is saying, discipline your son. It may be difficult. It may be frustrating. There may be no apparent pathways to a better way of life in view at this moment. But even in the midst of all of that, the writer of Proverbs exhorts the father, discipline the son, don't kill him. And I believe, Justin, that this is how hope translates into the day-to-day stuff of human relations and and therefore the day-to-day stuff of civic engagement. It is this idea that as long as there is any breath in the boy, you don't take your mind off of disciplining him. You don't set your heart to kill him. If there's any breath in him, you keep the hope alive. You discipline him because you have to understand uh, that your God is still alive. I, I believe that this is the kind of wisdom and exhortation that motivated the father and the prodigal son that Jesus uh, gives us that account. I think this is that same thing, that that hope that if the child is alive, then there is still hope. And so I'm going to continue to look out for him. I'm going to continue to work. And I think the same thing translates into the, the issues that, that we care for. Yes, it gets frustrating. It gets so frustrating at times that you want to throw your hands up and quit. Uh, you want to say, well, let's just burn it all down. Let's just give up on our political system. Let's just give up on our political discourse. But as long as there is any life in it, uh, as long as the government still exists, don't set your mind on killing. Don't give up. Why? Because there is hope. And as Justin already laid out, if God is still alive, then hope can be and must be assumed. If God is still benevolent, then we have to be able to anticipate that maybe there is some special blessing that God is going to send our way. If God is still omnipotent, then we have to continue to understand that while we have great and tremendous problems, we don't have any problems that are too big for God. If God is still merciful, we've done a whole lot of wrong things, but we can never assume that we've accumulated such a great weight of sin that God cannot carry it away. Uh, If we still have God, then we still have hope. And because of that, we can and should continue to work at it because there is hope. And I I think it's very important for us to understand the basis of our hope and then understand how that translates into our uh, sort of engagement. No, that's a word, man. I mean, so much of Christian politics seems faithless and hopeless. 
Um, and you just have to wonder, does it have something to do with how we view God or how we view God acting in this world? Uh, our interactions with our interactions with him and, and just providence. Um, and again, I really want to go back to the idea that this hope gives us the proper perspective, because I think Christian, the Christian perspective, how we view our worldview as applied to politics is skewed. It's off. And until we can see past the moment, we're going to be in a bad place. So just something for y'all to think about. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about, about more about hope and what that looks like in the public square. We'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Chris, I think that we've been blessed because uh, really all we had to do to understand what this type of hope looks like in the public square is to look no further than our elders. Um, the believers who fought in the civil rights movement, uh, those who bore the burdens of their day with an unyielding Christian hope. Um, that example, in my opinion, is just invaluable. You know, for me, because I know my grandmother, Willie Faye Cooper, survived through the Jim Crow South and still had a joyful spirit and still had the presence of mind to teach me about the love of God and still didn't hate anybody, no matter what they did. If I can have an understanding and because I got to see that in real life and if she could do it back then, then I know I can do it now. Right. And there should be within us this desire to spread that spirit, this desire to spread that legacy in this moment, because, you know, we, we can kind of get really preoccupied with um, with, you know, just all these things, whether it be microaggressions or what somebody said to us on Twitter or somebody not liking us here or there. But again, if we put it in perspective and what we think, if we think about what some of the folks who have been able to accomplish before us. I think we should be able to handle it. I think we should have a better perspective because of the memories that I have of some of my elders and that example. It's hard for anybody to make me lose hope. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have moments where we struggle. But because I know it's possible to have joy in the midst of hatred because I've seen it, I have reason to imitate that. It's proof of concept for me that I got to see up close because I had the blessing to be so close to people who struggled 
right? It wasn't that their life was perfect. It was the, the beauty of knowing how much they struggled and still that they smiled and cared and loved and never taught me anything negative uh, about the, you know, or, or that took away, I should say, the human dignity of anybody. And so if you look at that and you, you cl- cl- uh, clearly understand all that they had gone through, the odds are never too high to forget that there's a way maker. Right. And I know this primarily because the Bible says so. But I also know it because of the blessing and the example that I was given by my elders. And so as we look at this, you know, we first talk about what's the reason that we should have hope. I I really want to get into what does that hope now look like in the public square? And for me, again, it's based on the example of these elders, our grandparents who were part of that civil rights uh, uh, generation that went through so much, but left such a great example uh, that we know was fueled and founded on the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And so when I when I want to, you know, when I want to say, hey, what does this 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 hope look like in the public square? I want to start off by by talking about this kind of tenacious compassion and gracious truth telling, right? It's these things as as often happens with the Bible that don't seem to go together, but then they do go together. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had to be very loving not to try to return the favor um, based on what some of these civil rights folks went through. I mean, that's a type of love and understanding and compassion that is unmatched. But you also had to be somewhat tenacious and determined to keep on going through that. To not allow that to stop you, to not say, well, I'm just going to sit and wait for things to change. No, I'm going to go out there and tenaciously give all I got to make things change. And I think it, in, in one way, it, part of it is an understanding that the outcome is very important. But the public witness, the profession we're making with our civic engagement and with our public voice is even more important. And so we have to keep in mind that our tone and our posture and the words that come out of our mouths tell people everything they need to know about what we truly believe. Right. You could be advocating for the most compassionate policies possible, but if your tone and posture and the words that are coming out of your mouth are bitter and vengeant, then your public witness falls short of what the Bible requires. And you're proving that you don't have the hope and deep abiding joy that the Bible talks about. Again, this doesn't mean that you can't have a bad day. We all fall short. Neither me or Chris would come to you and say that we don't have a day where we're not feeling that uh, at the moment or where we haven't acted in a way that we shouldn't. But we're talking about a general disposition, a general posture and a position in the public square that's going to be demonstrated in your public witness. Now, if I have certainty and therefore I have hope and therefore I have perspective, then I can approach my political opponents with serious determination, but without a winner take all mentality. It doesn't mean that I'm going to let them get over on me or get over on the people that I'm advocating for or that I'm going into this conversation in a really naive way. But I can honestly admit when I'm wrong and even give ground, Chris, if that's what's necessary to maintain my integrity. Right. And I think one of the things we have to realize when we talk about this hope and when we talk about the reality of things is that Christians are always going to live in a tension. 
we're going to live in this tension where we know that things will never be perfect. Christians don't believe that we're going to create a utopia on this earth before Jesus returns. So we know there's going to be suffering. We know there's going to be hurt, but it's in tension with the, the, the also the understanding that we can make people's lives better, that we can have an impact and that we're doing it to glorify God either way. So even if we didn't see that impact, we still do it because that's what we're told to do. And it shows our love for our, bro- our brothers and sisters, and it therefore shows our love for God. But, Chris, I want you to dig into what this hope looks like as applied to the public square. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that one is just so great uh, that we're having this conversation because folks need to be reminded of these things so that we can be so much more intentional in how we engage and even making the decision about if we engage. Uh, the, the foundation for hope, uh, according to the scripture, is faith, Hebrews chapter 11. The uh, uh, faith is the assurance or the substance of what we hope for. Uh, and uh, with faith being that, that foundation, uh, uh, the then, and knowing what James says about faith, right? Show me your faith apart from works. I show you my faith by what I do. Uh, for me, then the clearest evidence uh, that we're holding on to any hope for our civic and political future is the activity that we are engaged in in our political and civic present. Uh, I think one of the the great examples of this, and it brings in a lot of what Justin was just talking about, the idea that we live in this tension. Uh, The the three Hebrew boys before Nebuchadnezzar, uh, their statement, when I've uh, taught and and preached, to bring it into a little bit more of a contemporary phrasing, what, what they said to Nebuchadnezzar is, Look, we have every reason to believe that our God is going to work this out for our good. But even if in his sovereignty, he chooses to do something other than deliver us from your fiery furnace, we're still not going to bow. Uh, And what I love about the demeanor that we see uh, in that text is that not only we're not going to bow to the image, we're not going to bow our courage, we're not going to compromise our witness. Like we're just going to keep doing all this stuff that glorifies God. In our doing this, everything we know about God gives us reason to believe that he's going to work it out, right? Uh, But we are going to maintain our witness. We're going to maintain our joy. We're going to maintain our courage. We're going to maintain our stature regardless, because ultimately our hope is not even fixed in this idea of whether or not we get burned in the furnace. Like our hope is even greater than that. And I think that brings in uh, into view this tension with which we must live. And that is that because of what I know about God, I've got every reason to believe that we can have a new era of uh, congeniality and work togetherness in our democracy. I've got every reason to believe that we can have a new wave uh, of justice to build upon uh, the, 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 the things that were won by those elders uh, and ancestors. I've got every reason to believe that all those things can happen. And because of that, 
I don't make my main activity this hopeless activity of criticism and complaint and, uh, you know, breaking people down. I personally, the, the issues that I care about, I maintain the hope that we really can lift our politics above this current nastiness and division. And because of that, I'm busy trying to build bridges and form coalitions because I've got every reason to believe that God is going to make that happen for us. Can I say with 100% certainty that that's in store for America? No, but I've got everything, every reason to believe everything that I know about God tells me that that's possible. And so I'm working on it. Uh, I have hope that we can bring in uh, this new wave of faithful Christian witness into our political discourse that makes the discourse uh, healthier and more productive. And so we do the work of the end campaign. We are busy educating and organizing and developing leaders for this emerging movement because we have hope that it can happen. Can we say for 100% sure that's going to happen? No. But everything we know about God suggests that it, we got every reason to believe that he will do it. And so we go about doing this work. Uh, and to me, that's what the the hope looks like. Uh, I've got every reason to believe that God will do it. So I'm working at it uh, with all of my strength and I'm not putting anything ultimate in it. And that's what allows me to fight the next round, even if I lose, uh, you know, this current one. Yeah. I mean, contempt, it's a lack of contempt, right? Um, I don't have to be contemptuous and think other people are worthless when I have hope, even when they done something that's really hurt me or really hurt somebody else. I can go out and still have a conversation, write some commentary, be in a debate and acknowledge their human dignity. That's what hope looks like in the public square. Right. It looks like taking a loss and not being the type of person who's just going to try to blow everything up because I took an L. Now I want everybody else to take L. That's a lack of hope. And. Again, when we look at the civil rights movement, it's proof of concept. We've seen people uh, make progress. We've seen people go through so much and still glorify God and still have a public witness that speaks to people even today. But should we have to reach all the way back then for an example? Or do we have Christians today, the one sitting in your chair right now, the one looking at your computer or listening to your phone or whatever you're doing, that is ready to create that example for themselves because people feed off of hope, right? You know, it, it is contagious when you have hope and you show it in a way uh, with strength, people will see that and people will benefit from it. Do we have the type of Christians today who are ready to be that example rather than always having to reach back and get an example from back in, back then? It's helpful to me, but I'm hoping that the and campaign can help people be that example in this moment. Because as I said many, many times before, this is not going to get fixed until we come together and serve God's purpose. God's doing what he's going to do, but we need to come together and serve him in a better way and not just serve our own uh, interest in the moment or really our own pride. Um, and, and that's just a major conversation. I, I'll kind of end with this. I think one of the major parts of this, and I talk about it quite a bit, is moral imagination. Do Christians have the moral imagination to look at some b very bad circumstances and see the promise and the plan through those circumstances? So for me, moral imagination is the ability not just to see what has been historically, not just to see what's going on today, but to see what ought to be happening 
and what can happen in the future. To see past somebody's hatred and their bitterness and see their human dignity. We're human. That's not always visible to us. But we got a book that tells us it's always there, whether we see it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And I'm going to end by saying this. It's time for you to join this movement. You don't have to sit on the sidelines. You can be a part of this conversation, too. You can reach out to us at engage uh, at uh, engage at andcampaign.org if you want to get involved. You can uh, go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics to, to, to support us and give us these resources. We need you to be a part of this because me and Chris are really determined to make sure that the next generation doesn't have to reach back to 60 and 70 years ago to get an example of what hope looks like in the public square. We want to be able to work with you and the church to make that a more recent example and a profound example. So will you join us? As usual, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let you. Oh, Lord. I say, King.